0: Pastor Scott, good morning, ZPC. It is good to be here with you. And I hope that this week, despite the cold, or maybe because of the cold, that you were able to uh, get out in creation as we talked about last Sunday. And uh, our family was able to take a nice long walk in Starkey Park yesterday with the snow everywhere. It was beautiful. And so, uh, and maybe we'll get even more this week. How exciting is that? You're mixed. All right, that's fine. Um, but hopefully you're able to get out and remember the vastness and the beauty of God's creation and the reminder that is of the vastness and the beauty of our Creator. Amen. Well, we are continuing our look at the life of David. And so um, this is, I believe, our third Sunday uh, as we're going to be looking at this over the next uh, few months. And so today we are looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses one Through 16. So I invite you to hear these words. When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. As a result, Saul set him over the army and all the people, even the servants of Saul, approved. As they were coming home, When David returned from killing the Philistine, the women came out of all the towns of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they made merry, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. For the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that time on. The next day, an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house. And While David was playing the lyre as he did day by day, and Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul threw the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And David marched out and came in, leading the army. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for it was he who marched out and came in leading them. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, as we enter this story from long ago. We pray that you would lift it from its pages and allow us to immerse ourselves in it, to be shaped by it. Heart, mind, soul, body, all of us. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So, uh, if you were here last week or if you watched online last week, you will know that we talked about the story of David and Goliath and the remarkable power that fear has over us, at least that it can. we, we talked about the fact that whenever you're in the midst of fear, of course, especially Goliath-shaped fear, it can immobilize us. It can paralyze us. We can sit there and, and stare. It's much, I think, like staring into the navel of the, uh, of the giant, this fear, where you can't see to the left or to the right or above it or below it. You can see nothing but that fear. You can think about nothing but the fear. You can feel nothing but the fear. It can be paralyzing. And in the midst of that, you have David, the li- who is following and immersed and soaked into the living God. And what we said. What's remarkable about this, of course, is that when you're centered on God, it's not that you don't see Goliath. It's not that you don't hear Goliath. It's that that's not all that you see. It's not all that you hear. Certainly those things that can bring fear are still there. But David had a God-sized vision which allowed him to see more than just that. So that when others saw hopelessness, David saw hope. When others saw only darkness, David saw light when others could see only Goliath, God, or David could see God. And so it's a whole different way for us to begin to think about being immersed in God and the ways in which it allows us to navigate and to journey in the midst of those things, which very well could cause us fear. And again this week, we are met with the debilitating and a distorting feeling power that fear has in our lives. Not just that, but even anger and jealousy, things that oftentimes actually come out of a foundation of fear. David continues to be successful. Things are going well for David. And when he comes and comes back into uh, the city, all of a sudden we hear these women, right? And they are dancing. They have tambourines uh, and they are singing and they're singing a song. It says, Saul has killed his thousands. Now, I want to just pause right there in the middle of that song to ask a question. What if they had stopped there? What if the women had stopped with saying Saul killed his thousands? What would Saul be feeling and thinking? I'm going to imagine that if this was the case, that Saul would be thinking, well, that's great. They realize that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, which is defending the people of God, that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, which is protecting them from their enemies. If they stopped that Saul has killed his thousands, then likely he might have been ready to have a party, to have a great celebration. Why not, Saul? You're doing an incredible job of doing exactly what God wanted you to do. You are helping us. You are keeping us safe. But, of course, they didn't stop there. And so even though Saul at the beginning of that song may have thought, hey, Saul had killed his thousands, this is a great song. They continued to say, and David has killed his ten thousands, which means, of course, in their estimates, David's doing you know great things, but even greater. And because of that, Saul can't see. What he has done. Remember we said this last week. It's a bit like going on social media, you know, and you're feeling good about your life. And then all of a sudden you see, you know, all these other things that these other people are doing and all the great gifts that they have and all these great blessings that they have, which then is not only a sadness because we get angry about that or we get jealous about that or we're fearful about that, but it's because we then are unable to see the good that we have, the good and the true and the beautiful and the blessings that we have. So rather than Saul celebrating or even saying, wow, David, kind of my underling, if you will, look at how he's doing as well. Instead of being able to celebrate those things, this anger and this jealousy and at its foundation, this fear completely changes the way he sees. We said that these things change the way we see the world. But of course, it also means it changes the way we see the people are in our world. And so from this moment on, from this moment on, the way that Saul sees David begins to change dramatically. In fact, the, uh, the, the narrator of the story says that uh, from this moment on, he, he eyed David. I, I love that, right? He's kind of like, I got you. I know something about you. And he begins all of a sudden to start distorting the way that he begins to see, to begin to disfigure this person who is David. We really have a remarkable uh, view of this because we have two different scenes that help us to see the difference that it makes when we begin to see people differently. Just a few chapters earlier, we didn't actually cover this, but Saul was being tormented, right? He was not in a place, he was anxious, fearful, and they brought David in. Because David could play the lyre, And so David came in and he began to play for Saul. And Saul loved it. It brought him great peace. In fact, he loved it so much. He loved David so much that he said, hey, you know, can David, he says to Jesse, can David come live with me? I want him to come live here. I love it. It's so amazing. His playing is incredible. But here's David. Doing the exact same thing, playing his lyre, this beautiful music. But now, because all of a sudden David is, or Saul is looking at him through a lens of fear and a lens of anger and a lens of jealousy, that rather than it being sweet music that soothes his soul, all of a sudden it is a music that sours his soul. So much so that he tries to kill him, he tries to throw a spear at him twice. What a fascinating juxtaposition, which I think should really, by and large, it should wake us up. This remarkable image, this remarkable juxtaposition. The same thing, the same music, and yet how dramatically different it can feel. David, at this point, can do nothing good, nothing noble. It's all seen that no matter what he does, there must be something disingenuous. There must be something sinister, Saul believes. And I think that that kind of jarring should actually wake us up. Because truth be told, it's fairly easy for us to see when other people are doing that. My guess is, if I said, can you think of an example of when you've seen somebody who looks at somebody else, maybe even at you, and, and even though you or they are trying to do good things, this person, when they see it through a lens of anger or jealousy or fear, they distort everything, they disfigure everything. Most of us could probably come up with a situation like that. But it is much more difficult. For us to see it when we are the ones who are afflicted by the danger and the distortion and the disfigurement of our fear. And so, as we'll talk about in a moment, one of the greatest things that we can do, of course, is to have people who are in our lives with whom we can check. I've actually done this where i said, look, this is exactly the situation, as clear as I can say it, but I'm not entirely sure. Am I looking at this correctly, or am I distorting and disfiguring because of my own fear or angers or jealousy? We can't always trust how holy and noble our own eyes are. And so David then, in this sense, not only did we begin to see how he's being distorted by Saul's vision, but we also get to begin to see the impact it has when you are the recipient or the target of fear and anger and jealousy. I love the way um, that Eugene Peterson, when he starts this chapter, and when he's talking about uh, this, this portion of 1 Samuel, Uh, Eugene Peterson says this, he says, It always comes as something of of a shock that not everyone likes us just as we are. Isn't that a great line? It always comes as something of a shock that others don't like us just as we are. You know, when you grow up and when you're young, you know, you think people just like as you are. Because everyone, you know, it it tends to be most of us at least, hopefully, have parents who love us and they nurture us. And they're they're changing our diapers for us. They're, They're feeding us. They're making sure we have shelter. All of those things, right? And so when you're little, you just think, wow, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I like this, right? But at some point, you know, sometimes it's when you go to kindergarten. Oftentimes, perhaps, that's when it is. But at some point, all of a sudden, yeah, we begin to be shocked. Wait. Mom and dad said, I was like this, but you just said this to me? And we begin to all of a sudden start to see that maybe people don't like us for just as we are. In fact... um I'm just thinking about this when our kids, I mean, with our kids, fortunately, they've not been the brunt, uh, at least as far as we know, of too many physical or emotional spears that have been thrown at them, but there have been a few times, and in the midst of that, it's very anxiety-inducing. It makes a parent feel very vulnerable. We want to protect our children from those things, of course, but it's just the reality of the world. You cannot go through the world without some of those spears being thrown in your direction. In fact, this is what Eugene Peterson goes on to say. He says this, he says, we're criticized, teased, Cursed, hunted down, snubbed, stabbed in the back, treated like a doormat, and damned with faint praise. Not all of those things, and not all the time, but enough of them, and often enough, to realize that not everyone shares God's excellent attitude toward us. Don't you love that? It's not something we like. It's not something we enjoy either for ourselves or those we love or our children or our grandchildren. But it does have a remarkable way of actually shaping us for good or for ill. There's no question that David, throughout his life, and we can see this, it is shaped. His life is shaped by the enmity that he feels uh, or that he is oftentimes the target of, especially by King Saul. We see it in his Psalms, especially, Um, you know, David and his psalms, I just, I kind of quickly looked at just four different psalms, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just, just a line from each of them. How long, O Lord? How long? From another psalm, O Lord, my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Another psalm says, help, O Lord, for there is no longer anyone who is godly. Another one, protect me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Right, Just four psalms, there are many more, but in which David candidly engages with God about the struggles that he is facing, about how he is the target of these spears, literal or metaphorical, that keep coming toward him. But here's what I want you to notice, and this is something we talked about, I don't know, a few months ago now. That David could easily have been so offended by those things that he could have separated himself from God. He could have decided, I want to have nothing else to say to God. I feel like God's abandoned me. Or he could have just been angry at God and said, I'm not going to talk to God. Or he could have done a, a number of things. Or he could have said, well, I just, you know, in order to be holy, I can't say anything to God. But all that does is it separates you further and further from God. But did you notice that what David does when he's the target of these things, rather than going away from God, he actually is drawn closer to God. He begins to engage with God in this incredibly candid, these honest, these transparent, These vulnerable kinds of remarks and questions and thoughts and complaints. There's this beauty, a part of the reason why David is able to be shaped so much like God, why he's able to continue to follow God, why he's able to be a man after God's own heart, is not because of the fact that he was flawless or perfect or because his life was all great and wonderful and dandy. It's because of the fact that in the midst of those afflictions, in the midst of those pains, he kept dealing with God. He kept talking to God. He kept listening to God. And so as we want to try to figure out how do we best follow God through the midst of the good and the ill, the challenges, and when things are going well, it is by constantly dealing with God. Constantly talking and listening and praying and reflecting and meditating. Meditating. That is an amen if I have ever heard it. But there's something else, it seems to me, that we need to pay attention to when it comes to David and his ability to continue to be in relationship with God in spite of or in the midst of afflictions and struggle. It's something that maybe we don't talk about a whole lot, um, but it is the power and the influence and the importance of deep and intimate friendship. I don't think it's just happenstance that at the same time that we are kind of introduced to the anger and the murderous rage and the hatred and the fear of Saul, we are also introduced to the beauty and to the intimacy and to the covenant. Friendship between David and Jonathan. I think sometimes when we think about friendships, we just think, well, they're nice, and certainly they're nice, they're wonderful, they're great. Sometimes maybe we think, well, they just fill the space. I'm not as lonely when I have a friend. But friendship, it seems to me, is actually an incredibly holy event. Sometimes we, we, we tend to think that we just kind of come up with our friends. But I love, in his book, uh, The Four Loves, what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, no, 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 it, you, you don't just kind of happen upon friends. No, he says this. He says, in reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, posting to different regiments, The accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting. Any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of the ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, "'Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you,' can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. Have you thought about your friends in this way? About those people in your lives who have had these remarkable impacts? Have you thought, A, about those impacts? And have you stepped back to think about the fact that God has kind of brought you together. All of a sudden, this becomes this kind of holy event. It becomes this holy relationship set apart. And this is really this remarkable description, I think, of what friendship is and what it looks like in our text. Now, the way that it's described, I will admit to you, it can it can feel a little bit strange at times. Really, I think though that that probably has less to say about scripture and more to say. About us, there is a deep intimacy in the way that the friendship between Jonathan and David is described. And I think oftentimes in our individualistic society, we are not comfortable with that. I would say probably especially. I could be wrong, but especially when it comes to relationships between males, we tend to not be very comfortable with talking about that kind of thing. We we you know, we just want to kind of do a, you know, I don't know, a chest bump or or knocks or, 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 or eat raw chicken. I don't know what men do. I'm not I'm not very manly, so I don't know what those things are, but, but that kind of that kind of tends to be like, "Oh yeah, that's what we're or, you know, that's what we're comfortable with." And, and so there's this fascinating view of, of intimate friendship between Jonathan and David, which I find to be very striking and poetic. Let's just listen once again to, to this description. It says this, When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe he was wearing and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. One of the things that scholars say when it comes to this love between David and Jonathan, that it's clearly, there's an emotional point, a component, personal, social. But there's also a political component, which I think is important to take note of, which is this exchanging of sword and and, 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 and of bow, of armor, of belt. It is also, in many ways, scholars would tell us, a sign of the fact that Jonathan realizes at this point already that he, though he may have thought so at some point, was not going to be king. That David was going to be king. And so there is already here, there's this remarkable sense of the humility that it takes for deep, intimate relationship, the humbling of saying, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to kind of lift up somebody else, but also the incredible sacrifice. If you had thought that you were going to be king, that you were going to be the top dog, that you were going to be the major leader, to be able to say, I'm going to make the sacrifice here. I'm not going to fight for this thing. In fact, I am going to actually protect you from my father, as Jonathan will do again and again. Why? Out of a love for David. And then, of course, you have this whole making of a covenant. I mean, let's be honest, that seems a little bit odd. I mean, how many of us, when it comes to our friends, you know, towards the beginning of a friendship, are like, hey, this is great, I love hanging out, can we make a covenant about this? No, most of us, of course, we would be like, uh-oh, this is going way too deep, way too fast, and we you know, oh, I can't make it, and before you know it, we would just go away. But there's this sense of covenant, and why it may you know, seem a little bit awkward to us, as Tim Keller points out, what it reveals in many ways is that a deep, intimate friendship with others, there's a sense of it not just being a user mentality, what can I get out of this, how can this be helpful to me, rather there's this sense of, of real commitment, again, the sense of real service and sacrifice, this sense of being, you know, fully with the other person. And I think it's just this kind of beautiful sense of, of what it means to actually be in deep Friendship. We're going to have acquaintances and those are great. We're going to have friends that are kind of surface level and that's great. But the critical nature that for David, in order for him to be able to navigate this journey that God has placed David, has placed Jonathan into his life to love and to protect and to support and to challenge, to encourage all of those things that David was desperately in need of. Eugene Peterson looks at this relationship between Jonathan and David, especially under the shadow of of David and Saul, and oftentimes in looking at most of the friendships perhaps that we oftentimes find ourselves in, he says, you know what, if you're fortunate, he says this, if we're fortunate someone enters our life who isn't looking for someone to use, is leisurely enough to find out what's really going on in us, is secure enough not to exploit our weaknesses or attack our strengths, recognizes our inner life and understands the difficulty of living out our inner convictions, confirms what is deepest within us, a friend. I wrestled a lot with exactly how to engage this conversation today because in some ways I think we so often, again, just, don't really consider friends when it comes perhaps to our own spiritual journey, and yet clearly, when you see God placing in people's lives Jonathan into David's life, it does seem to me that there is something that is remarkably deep, intimate, covenantal, and spiritual, and holy. Now that well, we could just say, hey, isn't this a great thing, and you guys should do it, but as in most things, the only way that one really knows how to talk about it is to be honest in talking about you know, his or her own life and their own experiences with this. For me then, whenever I was thinking about this all week, I was thinking about um, James Russell Hawkins. James Russell Hawkins is uh, also known as Rusty. And Rusty, uh, and I realize when I talk about Rusty and Jerry, it, it seems like we should be in our 80s or 90s and out on the front porch in a rocking chair with lemonade. And maybe someday we will be. But Rusty is my second double cousin. Which means that my mom and his mom are first cousins, but what it also means is that uh, uh, our grandfathers, who were brothers, married uh, uh, two sisters who are, our, who are our grandmothers. I know, I thought about doing a family tree, it just kind of it begins to feel weird after a little bit, but just take, take my word for it, it's okay. And our friendship began, really, uh, in depth about 25 years ago. It it began, uh, C.S. Lewis says this, I love it, he says, it began like most friendships do, with just these words, you too? I thought it was just me. Right, have you ever had a friendship like that? Oh, wow, and all of a sudden you begin to realize these connections that you actually have, and so he was at Wheaton uh, starting his freshman year. He was having some real struggles. I'm about four years older than him. And so, you know, I heard that he was having some struggles. Uh, and, and so probably through the first double cousins, uh, our parents. And so so I, you know, I called him up and said, hey, I had that same kind of thing in my freshman year. And we just began to talk. And actually just about, you know, a year later I was actually uh, uh, there. I had gone to grad school there. And so we just kind of continued to, our friendship continued to grow. And by the third year we were, uh, uh, we had an apartment that, uh, that we stayed at together. and and and. And as I was just thinking this week, just about, you know, think about your own friends. Like, this, first of all, you just have the activities, right? I mean, you have those memories that you always have that usually when you get together with the person, you begin to talk about, right? You know, so for us, you know, we, we, we talk about, oh, you remember when we drove from Pennsylvania, had a wedding in Pennsylvania. He rode out there with me. And, and then we drove back to Chicago, and we didn't have the money uh, uh, to stay at a hotel room. And so we had to drive overnight. And he said, don't worry about it. I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll drive too. And he drove about the distance of the on-ramp. And he was like, I'm just too tired. I don't, I don't think I can keep going. I'm like, Are you kidding me? So, sure enough, the rest of the way, and you know, I'm just like, Come on, deck. Sorry, sorry. I'm just doing everything I can to stay awake, right? He was the one um, uh, who we rode uh, uh, kind of in separate cars, but caravaned up to Alaska. We've talked about those stories before, you know, where we just kind of hung out. We had great, you know, we argued, we, we had good times. We drank a lot of A&W root beer. The Canadians love a w root beer. Lots of restaurants there. If you really like it, you should go. We saw a grizzly. I'm not entirely sure it was a grizzly, but that thing has grown over the last 20 years. And now it's about 10 feet tall as we tell the story. We had times of, you know, uh, 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 um, Sunday football days, right? Football Sundays, I think I've talked about this, where we unfurled the sleeper sofa, you know, about about noon because we were in Chicago when the games would come on for about eight hours, we would do nothing but just watch football the whole time. We talk about his best man speech where he he stood up and he said, you know, the first thing you'll notice about Jerry, uh, beside his freakishly large lips. Isn't that mean? I loved it. Because it's so true. About our meals that we had together, mac and cheese with chopped up bits of hot dog inside. Am I right about that? That is a culinary treat. But of course, it's not the activities. It is so often it's the conversations that happen in the middle of those activities or in between those things. It's a time of being able to share our own life together, the hopes that we had, the, the hopes he had to get into schools, and then sometimes the disappointment when it didn't happen, the hopes I had for jobs, and, and the disappointments that happened therein when that didn't always work out. The time when he came in kind of late at night to say, hey, look, I think there's this young lady. I really, I, I think I really like her a lot. And I got to hear about Christy, who would eventually become his wife. He was the first phone call after I met Megan, uh, where I said, man, I met this woman, Megan. I think she is remarkable conversations that happen about things that are going well and things that are going less well. Of course, one of the things that always happens is we have challenges. The time he called me when his son was going into, he was going to be delivered in an emergency because the umbilical cord was around his neck and so I was kind of that, that first call that he made just to say, hey, can you please pray with me in the midst of this? But covenant intimate relationship, what it also entails, of course, is challenge, and the willingness to confront. I can remember, uh, and I may have shared this story before, when he uh, we were sitting there on that aforementioned sofa, and he was talking. And he said, "You know, Jerry, I got this. You know, I got this friend. I, I got to tell you, man, I really, I don't, I do not like his girlfriend." And I don't know if I should tell him or not. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, are you guys really good friends? Like, yeah. I was like, well, then I think, I think you should tell him. And he said, okay. Jerry, I don't like your girlfriend. <laughs> I, he, was, he was right. It wasn't Megan. Not Megan. But that took Courage. And there have been moments, I won't share those because those are his moments, but where I had to confront him. Not about a girlfriend, but about other things of just saying, hey. But as I I kept thinking about that, and there were so many more, and I'm not even, I realize, I'm frustrated I told this to Megan. It's a disservice to even describe it because I can't do it. as truly as I want to, but here's what I know. I would not be here today. I would likely not be married to Megan. I would be a very different person were it not for this deep and intimate friendship. And while we never signed off on any covenant, what I realize is that every act of sacrifice, every act of hope or encouragement or challenge is like one more letter of our name kind of signing off on this sign of covenant. An act of giving of a bow or a belt or an armor. So one of the things I realized this week is that I've not done a good enough job of expressing to Rusty and to other friends just how deeply thankful I am for them. I have a cousin, actually it's a cousin of both of ours, who passed away on Christmas Day uh, of COVID. And it's kind of the first of our generation, in a sense really, to have passed away, at least someone that I knew well. And I realized that compiled with this we have to take advantage of being thankful and voicing that gratitude to those who have impacted our lives. And so one of my encouragements this week as I looked at this life of, of David and Jonathan and this intimate friendship is that perhaps if you have a friend like that, and I pray that you do, that you will give voice today Don't wait till tomorrow, today, in some form or fashion, to simply say, I am glad and make no mistake about it that God put you in my life. This is a holy friendship. And I would not be the same if it were not for you. But I also realize, of course, that there are some of us who we don't have that kind of deep, intimate friendship where our souls have been knitted together. For some, I realize it may be because that person has passed away, whomever that was. So maybe as an act of of love, you can simply even just write a note to that person. As if they were here, as if they could receive it. Or maybe you can go do something that you all did together. Or maybe even do something to participate in something that they loved or cared about. I don't know, but something just to remember and to continue to give thanks even amidst the loss. Others, it may be that you had that, and for whatever reason, something came up. Maybe it was an argument. Maybe it was just time or distance. Maybe this is the time for you to simply extend that all of Brant's or just to reach out as a way of saying, hey, I miss you. Maybe you just never had that. And if that's the case with you, my hope and my prayer is that we can be the kind of place here at ZPC that cultivates that kind of deep and intimate friendship. COVID has just been a bear when it comes to our ability to cultivate relationships and friendships, and I grieve that. But my hope is, and I believe it, that as we are able to move past this, that we will be a place where these kinds of friendships, these deep, impactful, long relationships, intimate, soul of one's soul, that we can be a place that cultivates and helps to grow those things. But we need to be clear. Those kinds of friendships do not just happen. There are so many headwinds. Again, we live in a society that focuses on the individual that says you don't need anybody and it's even good to act like you don't need anybody. That is bollocks. We need one another and we need Jonathan and David kinds of friendships. Maybe it's hurt that you've experienced at some point in your life or the hurt that someone else has and it's difficult to trust one another. And we live in a culture that grades based off of your activities and your accomplishments rather than your deep friendships. But I hope that we will be intentional and that we will pray that God would continue to bring into our lives people with whom we can be fully present. With whom we can listen and love, give and take hurt and forgive, walk alongside of, and embrace. That the God who gives us all that we have, the food we eat, the water we drink, the shelter in which we live, the sanctuary in which we worship, will be the God who also provides us with those who are soul of our soul. For God's glory, for his alone. Amen. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us the gratitude that comes from those deep friendships that we might have. The courage to open ourselves up to friends we may not yet have. Because we know that you are the God who brings us together. You created us for you and for one another. That we might journey, Lord, in the majestic highs and the difficult lows and everywhere in between. We thank you, God, for those you put in our lives Pray that in the midst of that, we might journey this faith together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.